Hello to all the listeners. Welcome back to this season two, episode number six of the podcast Entrepreneur. I'm your host PJ. We in the previous episode we didn't have much of the episode coverage to talk about our book. Do not believe everything you think. So in this episode, we'll again start from chapter six. How the human experience is created. Three principles. If you guys haven't listened to the previous episodes, so this book is all about how thinking is your big enemy. Thoughts are different from thinking. So if you guys are so interested, just read the book. Do not believe everything you think. The human experience is actually created by three simple principles. Understanding these three principles enables us to know how we can elevate ourselves from our sufferings, but also allow us to create from source. Seems like pretty important thing. The three principles are universal mind, universal consciousness, and universal thought. Let's start with the first one: universal mind. Universal mind is the intelligence behind all the living things. So it's kind of a life force and energy that is in all the things, all the living things. It's how the seed grows into a tree, how the planets knows to stay in the orbit, and how our body knows how to heal itself when we get a cut. It's how our body knows how to self-regulate and keep us alive. Like without having to manually do anything, we breathe. You know, our heart is beating. It's all just. it happens naturally right so this intelligence is called universal mind where many people do call this god scientists do call this the quantum field the source infinite intelligence and many other names this is where thought come from as well as everything else in the universe all things are connected through universal mind like we are all connected by god right so there is no separation between anything and anything there seems to be separation it's just a illusion of our thinking there's nothing separated we all are connected see when we are connected to universal mind that is when we feel happy joy peace and inspiration but when we block the flow the universal mind begin to feel separated frustrated lonely angry resentful sad depressed fearful there's like a lot of bad things now coming to the second one universal consciousness universal consciousness is like a collective consciousness of everything it's just being aware see without universal consciousness you wouldn't be able to experience anything for example the five sense organs it's an experience right with that five sense organs you experience everything this universal consciousness is what brings life to every single living things on the planet and make them perceivable to us the third thing is the universal thought the universal thought is kind of a raw material of the universe okay where we create where we are created from it's our ability to think it's our ability to think and create form from the energy of the universal mind the book stated a very simple example where we could understand this universal mind consciousness and thought we all know dvd right thought is like a dvd it contains all information you know we can watch all the information in the dvd it stores everything okay you know what do you need for a dvd you need a dvd player and a tv right so the tv and the dvd player are the consciousness the dvd is the thought the tv and the dvd player are like a consciousness so 
this dvd player and tv it allows us to have a mechanism to bring the information on the dvd player to life so we can watch and experience the movie right so the electricity that needs to power the dvd player and the tv is like a universal mind in a sense the electricity is invisible it's like an energy that connects all the power it gives power to all the thing so it's the source from which everything can work the consciousness is the dvd player and the tv the thought is reciprocated through the dvd player and the tv your consciousness reciprocates your thought i think this pretty much says what our life is all about the sweet principle with that example just tells us who we are where we are from and what we can do we can control ourselves we can control our thinking we can control the way we live in happiness and sadness both depends on the way we live in and both depends on the way we just start thinking it's time to welcome our guest jeffrey potwin Jeffrey started his career as a manager e-commerce online marketing at Lobla Company Private Limited. He then became a director of business development at Caboose. By November 2007, he started his role as a VP sales and business development at Route 15 Media. By 2007 of October, Jeffrey founded his first company, Hardboot, which is a staffing and a resourcing company, with which he became a part-time professor and mentor at Seneca College. Jeffrey became an early stage investor in Flow Alkaline Springwater and Ribbit. He's also an angel investor in the following network: Spark Angel Network, Golden Triangle Angel Network, and York Angel Investors. By November 2017, Jeffrey became a founder of the Supporters Fund. It's a venture capital firm based in Toronto. This community has over 100,000 plus entrepreneurs, angel investors, VCs, corporate partners, and local and provincial government. He's also the founder of Open People Network, which is again a venture capitalist firm that has a group of early stage investors to up to Series A. The Open People Network and Supporters Fund together run a podcast called Ask an Investor, and Jeffrey is the podcast host. So, with no further delay, let's connect with our guest. So, hey Jeffrey, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well. Thank you very much for having me, PJ. I'm very excited. Very excited to be here. I'm really honored to have you over here. So, like a fellow podcaster, I'm I'm really so excited to have you over here. So, uh, you know, just before starting, you changed your career so many times. It's like a scary decision. I have done it, and you have done it. But I would say you're definitely a proof that things will take a turn and things will will happen right, even if it's a scary step. You started your career in terms of marketing, then you moved to business development. From there, you entered into entrepreneurship, and now you have a venture capital field, right? It's it's a completely different field. I am so intrigued, intrigued even by the outline. So, can you talk me through your journey from the start till now with Open People Network? Well, I think we all have it in ourselves and our abilities to push ourselves to be more than we can imagine. So I think if you take a step back and we look at and even I guess where I came from as a background in in software engineering and marketing and and kind of built my way through that, everything was a learning experience. It was you know from school all the way through. It was who the people were that you met, the conversations that you had, 
the interest that you built? What things did you dive into and where did you uh, learn to go a little bit further? And, and, you know, the things that you pushed yourself to learn. So, you know, you came from the same background on the software side. You, you learn to code differently. You learn how to mimic other people uh, with their expertise. And then from there you go into, you know, where do I want to go next and what things can I do? And, and I remember a, a great story when I first went out on my own as an entrepreneur. Um, my background, because I was an engineer, everybody knew that, that I was a CTO, if you would, as a, a easier term. And I remember I was being introduced and I was at Mars and um, there was uh, a, another, I guess, CTO sitting down for me. And the uh, the lady that I was with, she said, oh, you've got to meet this CTO. He's he's really great. And then she turned and she grabbed the person and she introduced the person. And, the, and she said, oh, you've got to meet Jeffrey. He's a great CTO. And I was like, no, 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 I'm a business person. I'm running a business. In my head, I was thinking this. But I figured at that moment was my realization is that I can't change the perception that people have of me. The perception is what I've already built. All I can do is add on new layers of value into what I can do and what I can offer. And throughout that time, and that was very early on when I started my uh, my first company, is that everything became then. It wasn't about trying to prove that I was somebody else. It was embracing what I already was. And I was great at tech. I was good at understanding it, developing it, and managing that part of my life. So now as I move forward as an entrepreneur, I had to embrace that and then just add in new layers of value that people could eventually over time learn and gain from. And that's what allowed me to make a shift into venture capital. That's what allowed me to build the Open People Network and start to work with startup founders more than I already had been. And, you know, to take a a step back into the process of how OPN was formed, it actually came from my days working at Loblaws. Um, I worked a lot. And at that time, um, when I did put a lot of time in working and, you know, 12, 14 hour days, because I loved what I did, is that the front end admin people didn't know what I did. They just knew I worked a lot and they knew I was an online guy. So they just started sending me every company that would call in every startup, every business that was looking to pitch somebody to get into the company, they would send them to me. So I would get hundreds of startup companies a week, a month, and I would take all their calls and vet all of them and figure out how can I help the ones that I thought were a good fit for Loblaws and meet them in the middle and get them connected with the right uh, vice president or or um, team lead inside of the corporation and help them sell their product through, re-engineer their model and sell it through. So that was just kind of something that I felt uh, connected to that I could really help these people maneuver through big business. And then once I left the corporate world and started on my own, I started to continue doing that. But I realized that I had a knack for working with startups and, and mitigating and working around things. And that's where I decided, well, after building my first company, I really want to focus on helping these companies generate funding and invest in them. So in that journey early on, I literally started investing and giving back and helping. And then from there, those companies came to me and said, hey, help us raise funds. And then that's where OPN was created. So seven years ago, we created a community of helping early stage companies get access to investors through the goodwill and benefits of working with uh, tech founders and investors, entrepreneurs, all of the alike came together and we help running programs, helping run events. And these are the ways that we give back 
And then from there, we get to find great companies to invest in. And that's really where OPN started. And today we now have uh, the supporters fund, which is our investment vehicle. So instead of just investing myself, it became a way that collectively we could get, get other uh, great founders, entrepreneurs, LPs that were interested in our model to invest in us. And then we were able to invest in all of these great founders that we had the opportunity to work with. That's really an awesome story. And as you said, like the entire journey started when you started loving your job that you did back in Lubla. So once you love doing what you, I mean, once you love doing what you do, you definitely have the way out there. That's awesome. But throughout the story that I've listened, you, you changed careers and did you ever feel like, okay, uh, you know, I am standing out, like I'm not following everybody else. And it's like, okay, am I doing the right thing? Or no, it's not the right thing. This There will be a lot of questioning moment when you actually be in that situation and look, look, out, look upon other people, right? So how, what is your advice to people who feel like that, who feel like they're not following the regular conventional path that people laid off already and they're being so unconventional? So what's your advice on that? It's a, it's a great question because the way we look at ourselves and a lot of people will have imposter syndrome where they feel that they're doing something that's completely wrong. And, and it's because your brain is attuned to going in one direction, which is the direction that you set out early on. So just as myself as an engineer, straight, you're doing the right things. This is what you know. When you go outside of what you know, you feel like you're an imposter. You're not doing the things that you were made to do or that you know that was the right thing because that was a pattern and you're breaking pattern. So at the end, is there a way to really validate or verify if you're doing the right things. I think you're going to gain that from the network, the communities that you build, the people that you uh, build around you, the tribes that you join. You'll gain that from their perspective and how they appreciate what you're doing or how you build revenues or you build sales, whatever that might look like in the future. But I think a lot of it comes down to is you putting in your own KPIs. You know, if it takes you 10 years to do something, do you feel like you're really successful? maybe not, maybe you won't find the value if it's 10-year program. But if you set up a program that says, you know, at the end of six months, I need to be part of this accelerator, part of this group, or part of this gain in value. And at that time, you check in and say, did I accomplish those KPIs? Did I meet what I was trying to achieve? I did. So now I set out the next six months or the next year. And even if it's just in your head or you mind map it or you write it down, all of it is about how do I get to that next stage? And once you start to achieve that next stage, that drops the imposter syndrome to a, a refined, um, maybe a backseat to what you're doing because you're making accomplishments. So you're actually being validated by the market. And now you have new ways to be validated because people want to showcase you through a podcast or through a website or through an article. So all of these things now become validation to what you've learned and what you're giving back and what you're pushing in your community. So sometimes you have to look for your own markers to prove to yourself that you're doing the right things. You know, you don't become the best surgeon because you've operated three times. You become the best surgeon because you have 500 operations and 499 of them gave you, you know, 100% five stars or whatever the um, credibility is for it. You build credibility over time and you have to keep learning. And the more you learn, the more intake you have, and the more community you can share that to, the more people will receive that, respect that, and then start to look for you to help them which that all tailors back down to, if you're going to make a pivot and you're going to do something different, 
be the best. Be the best at that. And your best might not be someone else's best, but you need to be the best. Because nobody wants to work with someone that's second, third, or fourth. But if you work your best and your ass off to figure out how to be the best, the outcome is that eventually you will get there and people will want to follow that journey. And they'll want to be part of what you are delivering. That's truly an awesome advice. Having a short-term goal instead of a long-term goal keeps you, you know, engaged and keeps you like you have accomplished it and you, you'll, it'll, you'll keep on pushing your boundaries after that. That's a perfect advice. And what inspired you to start business? Because you were in, in Lobla and after that business development, everything was going fine and suddenly you, you started your own venture. What inspired you to create that business and like, there has to be a huge amount of courage or there are tons of questions like hover over there. Okay, we have so many things to keep on considering the metrics that we have to think about families and so on. Just pushing out all that you made it today. So just talk me about what inspired you. Again, for me, it started as a kid because as a kid, I was an innovator. I was changing the way things worked. Uh, I always looked at something and said, this doesn't make sense. And if I couldn't make sense of it, I wanted to fix it. So everything to me was broken until I could understand it. So if you told me how an engine worked, I would want to figure out why it worked that way because I thought it should work this way. And then I would re-engineer it to work that way. And, and I was reminded of stories when I was a kid just around certain things that I did uh, um, from building my own. Uh, it's kind of funny, but I built my own safe. Even though it was out of wood, I built my own safe and I made sure that it worked because I had my own valuables, even if I was six or seven, even though today they probably weren't very valuable. They were just old coins or something. But the point is, is that I looked at something and how can I be innovative? I looked at uh, other things, building, taking uh, roller blades and turning them into roller skates or, or ice skates. So you find things that just didn't fit the same way and you make changes to them. And I think the fear that we all have is that we don't all look at things and say, is this broken? We just accept it and do it. And I think if you can look at anything in life and change the way it operates and see that there's a fault and that you can make it better, that's your first business idea. That's your, your big solution. You know, today I saw a, a great article from... um one of the more prominent companies in Canada. And one of the things that they built, which was something that I have tethered in my brain for decades, which is that we have too many meetings. So how do you cut back the amount of meetings? So what Shopify did was they put a number to the meeting and they said, this meeting that you're booking has an estimated value to the company of $3,000 for this half hour meeting. And that's brilliant because what it does is it puts it into context of why am I spending this much time doing X? So it wasn't specifically broken. It was just not enough information for you to learn on how to make an improvement. But what if we looked at everything that way and said, this way we're doing something could be improved by doing this. If I'm selling in retail in a store and the process seems broken and long and arduous, how do I clean that up and make it shorter and faster? Well, a lot of us just go through the, the draws of life and don't tend to look at I can make this faster and easier. So when I started and where I am today and all of the things were very tough, but because I was always solving a problem, it just seemed natural. So when I was, um, I had to be pushed just like everybody else. 
You have to listen to the voices around you, which are people talking, and decide which one of those voices really is what I should be doing next. And you're all going to hear them. We all hear them. And I don't mean crazy off-the-wall thoughts. I mean that people give direction without you realizing you're receiving direction. So in my case, my boss at Loblaws at the time sat me down and said, you don't belong here. You belong as an entrepreneur. The way you work and operate, you don't fit here. And I solved a lot of problems there. And I thought, no, I'm great. What do you mean? This is an awesome job. I love what I do. I work a lot. And he's like, no, you should work for yourself. So that was the kind of moment where I started to think to myself, hey, maybe he's right. Even though I had already pitched businesses before, I just never took the leap. So when I went to the next startup, that's where I started thinking more and more about this. Wait a sec, maybe he's right. Or maybe in my head, I don't fit here. Maybe I should look at something different. And then circumstance after circumstance led you down this new path. So sometimes you have to challenge it. Sometimes you'll fall into it. Other times you just find a great solution and make your way into it. And all of a sudden you're an entrepreneur and building something. So there's lots of different ways to balance the risk so that you can do this and be successful. And sometimes it's also the people that support you along the way, because that makes it even more comfortable for you to do it. And coming to Open People Network, you guys currently invest in deep tech, real estate, Bitcoin, CPG, customer package goods, and fintech. So I have spoken to quite few investors or VCs. I've never seen this sort of combination ever. Like each and every industry is unique in itself. So what's the reason behind those choices? Well, you're, you are 100% correct that typically investors do not have such a broad spectrum. And the reason being is that you cannot fit them into a bucket. So if I'm an investor and I want to invest in you, I want you to be good at one thing. And on my side, in our case, um, we wanted to back areas that we were comfortable with. And those were the areas that are my background. So they were comfortable for us to be able to invest in those areas. But now as we progress through over the years and seeing thousands and thousands of companies a year and then deciding which ones you want to invest in and the direction we want to take, we actually had to take a pause and pull back and come back with a new strategy for our next fund because we wanted to make it easier for investors to engage with us instead of us having to chase and engage with them and spend more time explaining how and why we work the way we do. We wanted to make the story a lot easier and cleaner for others. So now we're coming out with a new strategy that will put us in a bucket, which is not something I'm normally used to, but putting ourselves into a bucket so that people can say, I need bucket number one. I want to invest in that because it's simple, easy, and something that is uh, valuable enough and they've proven themselves enough that we want to invest. So that's the approach we've taken. So we're going to lob off a lot of those pieces that we've been doing because yes, they're good. Yes, we feel we've been successful. Yes, we've learned a lot. But in order for us to work deeper with our investors, we need to come up with one focus that will enable them to say, I need to invest in the best clean tech fund. And this is what we're going with. So a lot of these things are all going to fall below the line. And we will focus on one area. And that's the new strategy that will come out soon. 
also investing in early stage startups to the series A startup. You know, early stage startup does comes with some sort of risk. Like, do you have any specific challenge or risk that's very unique to investing in early stage companies? In all areas are very high risk, 100%. Risk is everywhere. The more you know about the space that interests you, the better understanding you have of the environment, the players in the environment are going to help you be better successful. So if you're going to be the best in a space, that provides you with a better opportunity for success in the future because the more you know about an area or a vertical that you're in, the more you can shift, change, and pivot because you're so intertwined in that space. The least you know about something, the harder it is for you to change because you lack the ability to be flexible and understanding because you have limited ability to know what's going on in that environment. So it's crucial that you understand the space you're in. And this goes for all founders, is that you're investing in, we call it the fifth gear. So you're investing in the uh, the LeBron James, the Michael Jordans of the world that just have that extra gear. But inside that extra gear is knowledge, experience, understanding, uh, empathy, whatever it might be. All of those things all rolled into one, but they understand the market so they can change and pivot as they grow while they're looking for scaling uh, revenue and, and commercializing their model. So in saying that, when you're taking a look at where this is all going to go and where this is going to end up is that Founders really need to be hyper-focused, driven, carry a subset of fifth and sixth gears that nobody else has, but they have a broad understanding of their market. They're the smartest person in the room. So these are the types of things and characteristics that we want to look for that allow for us to say, is that the perfect fit that we can go after? And do they fit our mandate, which is also in a box? And can we slot them into our box that's going to get everybody excited about it? because we've stayed very structured into that model. And this is the typical things that venture starts to look for, is that you need to take $1 and make it 10 and then make it a million, and then make it 50 million. In order to do that in duration and time, you have to commercialize that along that process. And is that founder, is that team, is that problem they're solving capable of doing all of those pieces? And if so, then how do you get behind them and start making investments. So the risk keeps getting reduced by the abilities of the people that you're investing in. And this means you have to really understand and build a relationship and understand these founders, understand the teams and where they're trying to go, understand if they have passion or they're just doing this for for the sake of it, for money or whatever the reasons are. What is the story to all of that that you can align and get behind? But all of those things are going to make a huge difference for you as an investor, especially when you're first money in, the risk is even higher because you don't have enough of a track record to show where they're going to go. So this is all a process. So this is the reason why you don't go and give a founder a million dollars on their first money in investment. You give them, say, 200000 and then you give them five, and then you give them $2 million, And you would say, well, it seems odd. You could own three quarters of the company right from the get-go. But the risk level is so high that you want to drip value. You want to see where those relationships are going to go, where they're going to build their company. And as they hit milestones, you deploy more capital because the excitement level of growth meets your requirements for your mandate to grow your fund, 
which allows them to be part of that and vice versa. So it's a real team ecosystem on both parties from a venture firm to a startup on how you're allocating funds and how they're hitting the KPIs and hitting their mandates as you're hitting yours and you grow together. So it's really just a large team of people working together to build a, a really great company and a future in in venture. So coming just precisely to open network, you know, some investors do just invest in in the vision of the company. Like there are startups who has just gain investment just by looking through the vision and not having any MVPs or like financial strategies or marketing strategies. In order to reach out to you guys, like do you have any fixed mark? Like you guys should have these sort of sales, at least these markups, or you should have this financial strategy, an MVP that has sold out this much. So what are the, you know, mark that you're looking for? Typically as a angel investor, you will look at verticals that you're happy and comfortable with. And once you have those metrics, it can be done on ideation, just an idea and the founder in the background, and you can make an investment and go forward with that. Typically, as a venture capitalist or venture firm, what you're looking for is some sort of proven record. You'll come in earlier based off the fact that the founder could be a second, third time founder. It could be that they're in a real niche vertical and you see a really scalable opportunity. So there are different ways to operate within that mandate. But typically, in our case, we look for companies that do have some build. They potentially have uh, some revenue, IP, uh, good sort of team out, whatever those few things are that de-risk it. That's our interest level. When we typically make a first money investment, if we make a 250 investment into the company, we might be the only investor, we close it, and then we work on helping them get to their next round. So we will lead and help them make it to that next point. And they may have limited revenues. They may have just built their prototype, whatever that looks like. For us, it's doing market analysis and understanding where they fit and seeing if in our due diligence, they fit a potential scalable business that we can risk today and build on over the future. It's evident that from the entire conversation we had from the start, you always, you know, wanted to provide value and help to people. You value people behind the startup. So in your experience, how critical do you think the values and the due diligence have to align with the investors and the entrepreneurs? I'm going to say it's number one. You know, okay. I think the best saying that I've always heard over time was you can, if you have a a B product and an A team, that A team can make the B product an A product. If you have a B team and an A product, it can all fall apart. You can't always increase the value of a team without the team having to learn and build from it. So you have a lot more risk there. So I think it all starts with the founder. And, and this is early on. That can change over time. The team you have today is not the same team you'll have in three years. The business you have today will not be the same you have in three years. So it's a matter of being aggressive, understand the hustle culture to a point, but understanding how to pivot, how to grow, how to learn from others, having man uh, uh, mentors, coaches, advisors. All of these smart people are what help you become smarter and build your company to be in a smarter direction. Without those people, you have less ability. And I was thinking as a, as a line to this is that your first podcast 
is different from your fifth podcast. It's different <laughs> from your 20th. The first podcast, you went in with all of these pre-notions on how to ask questions, how to learn. And then over time, you've grown to learn from those questions that have improved your ability to call yourself a podcaster, to enable yourself to be behind the mic instead of in front of the mic. So you're, you're doing those things to improve yourself. Those are the same things a founder and a startup need to do at the same time. So they're going to continue to move forward and every day they become faster, sharper, better than they were the day before. And the more people you surround yourself, the more interviews you do, the more types of people you interview, the better and sharper you get at your skill so that you could become better, that you might be able to have 10 podcasters working for you because you now found the formula that makes this better. So now you can scale in your model because you see the opportunity of sharing and giving back all this knowledge, but you're only one. So you're going to make yourself five, 10, 20 people. And now you can scale that all out. So the founders in the industry have to do the same. Find what is the nugget that's missing, create that value and build it forward. So I wanted to ask you, like, do you have any particular memory of an investment that's so special and close to your heart? I think the broader answer to this is that every investment that I've made, I feel that I'm well connected to all of them. I think they're all great investments because I've learned from every single one of them. And even if the company failed or even if the company moderately succeeded or really succeeded, it's all determined on what you value as succeeded. If you're on the monetary value of a 10, 20, 30x, versus a failure that didn't have a return, but you got a lot of learning from, it's kind of a mixed bag because uh, I find everything I've done is ballied into three things. What am I going to learn? Who am I going to meet? And how much money am I going to make? And you decide which angle you take, which you can only have one at a time. So you got to put them one, two, and three. And I've always wanted to learn everything. Wasn't great at meeting people, so that was the biggest number two. And one day someone will pay me for what I know. So a, fa a fail, you learn so much from, which means I can help more people gain insight so that they don't fail, and I can protect and insulate myself from failures by what I know. So failures are just as good as wins, and the people you're going to meet, they're the ones you surround yourself with in your tribe and value to gain that value going forward. When you build a company, build a business, those are the people that help you succeed. And eventually those things are all going to pay you money because you're going to find the way to make money. So in our case, we've had lots of successes, failures, ties, all of the above, maybe more ties than wins, but they all had learning and value that we gained. But the, I guess there are a couple that stand out because they're the ones that we went into earlier and we gained a lot of insight because of the connection we made with the founder. And the more connection we made in with the founder the more we learned how they think, why they made this choice in the direction you took, and then being on the boards, that also gave us a different perspective of how other people that were heavily involved in the company looked at where the founder was sitting and what ways they could push them to go different directions to win. So at the end, you know, from companies going public to companies failing, we've gone across the spectrum, but I know I'm not pinning, pinning one because there's so much value that we've gained from all of them. And the more we gain from that, I think this allows us to be hopefully, even if it's 0.01% better than our last investment, 
it's better than what we're doing so that we can have more successes for our investors so they make money. So you're not going to give me a single answer for this, but it's okay. So well, there's some great ones. I, I can say that we invested in a company that went public, Flow Hydration. Wow, that's awesome. awesome. Great, great company, great founder. Love wow. working with them. Great guys. We have other companies that have sold um, and they're just now uh, closing off. And I would invest in this founder again 100%. Wow, wow. That's really We've awesome. had a company that failed just recently. And I would invest in that founder, hands down, anytime. And the reasons are all the same. The founders were not only driven, passionate about their what they were building, but they were also able to steer the ship at any second because of the knowledge they gained from the markets. And sometimes they were able to shift to a win, others to a tie. And unfortunately, the market shifted them to a loss in one instance, but the thing is, is that the three-year knowledge that they gained means that that investment in their second or their third company is going to be even better than this one. So before going ahead, I mean, uh, there are two different topics that I have to touch on. One is the field, like two different fields that you guys are investing in, fintech and deep tech. Like with fintech, I have this normal general question that just pops up. Fintech has truly a potential to disrupt the traditional financial institution, but the relationship between this fintech startups and the financial player is literally crucial, right? There is this competition or sometimes the collaboration that prevails either way, like a fintech could, I mean, a financial player could buy a fintech company, they collaborate, they just move on. But how does it impact a, a decision in terms of investment? When, when looking at uh, the fintech space, and this is a great question because when you shape it around the way a fintech works versus any of the other categories, is that fintech is highly governed. Yeah, that's right. And because it's highly governed, there are way more rules and regulations that have to be followed in order for your business to be able to infiltrate what the core systems that already exist. And we all look at it and think, as an example, banking is... Terribly done. It's impersonable, doesn't allow you to do this, 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 and this. So we all think, let's go fix it. But the difference that fintech offers or banks offer is that they have been protecting themselves government-wise over fraud for over 100 years. From bank robbers, running trains, all the way up to today for any type of scam. So the knowledge that they've gained on self-protection is incredible, but they've also built governing bodies and everything else to secure the fortress. So what does that do? That secures the fortress against startups and anybody else coming in because at the same time they had to protect themselves against fraud, but they also had to protect themselves against from people stealing their IP or their internal learnings. So most bankers and everybody all work for each other somehow spreading around. Well, all that's done is move them higher and higher above everybody else. So now when you come in as a startup, your goal is to say, I need to change the way this operates and functions, but you do have to operate inside of their space. And it's a tough one to say, well, I don't need their regulations. I can do around it. You can try. But again, because of protecting people and their money, which is the number one thing in the world, you have to protect people's money and their assets, and you can't fraudulently do this, the governance levels are a lot higher. So in the rest of the world, you're not seeing this, you're seeing the same thing you see here, which is that it's a very high wall to scale. 
And you can go in and spend all the money in the world for governance to get there and then realize when you get there, it doesn't work because you weren't able to get over the wall. Or the other side is you went over the wall and you got slammed with a million uh, lawsuits and every other problem because it became fraudulent or it broke or something occurred. So there is a middle ground to all of this. And when you're looking at it is how can this company over time grow in their base, build the value, meet the standards, continue to fall under the governance side, but build up a marketplace and be able to convene inside of the regulations on both sides so that this business can grow. So there is a lot more work that goes into understanding how this can work. And this goes in other spaces as well. Real estate works very similar. They've all built these big walls around their business because it made it more complicated than it probably needed to be. But because they were high dollar value um, assets, that's where this whole side of governance has to come in and has to be regulated. So I think if you're looking at what is the benefit or ways to ensure that your business will move forward, usually it goes to that whole uh, super unique niche market outlook and going after that and being hyper-focused in that area so that you can help and get regulators to break down those barriers to allow your business to come in to succeed. Because at that point, that's when you'll have the bigger companies see you and look at you as an opportunity for them to now acquire you because they want to make sure that they own that domain. And that is really probably the easiest way, hardest way for the easiest way into a tough market. I hope that answered the question. Yeah, that's that's right. So right now we're in these AI revolution phase, like with emerging AI What do you think is a potential future for the investment landscape will be like every domain, whatever you see started to use AI, it's just growing every single day, like industrial revolution and then internet revolution. I think the next few years is going to be a revolution. So what's your view on it? What do you think the investment landscape should, you know, will shift to? It's a tough one because uh, it's obviously you're projecting or predicting on the crystal ball what the future is going to look like. I would say that AI has been around for a long time, 20 years, 20, 30 years. It's now just been given a name, ChatGPT, et cetera, because of the size and monstrosity of what came out of it. Everything can connect in. It was built so that the world could, basically it was like turning Google on today and everybody was just amazed by it, right? So uh, do I think that that's going to change over the next five years? You're going to see a massive spike right now where everybody's investing in AI, AI, AI. It'll wear itself out because eventually not everything can have AI. So prior to this, AI was popular already, and everybody was saying they had had AI, but maybe only 5% of companies actually used AI in their system. Matching algorithms are not AI, but there was a lot of indifferences of how people treated what AI was. So today you now can tie into companies more or into the the main principal companies that contain that AI data. And now you can build algorithms that will work within that. So yeah, sure, you may have over the next two to five years have more companies that are utilizing the AI data. But does that mean that they are smart, fast, quick, and a real value to invest in or acquire? If they don't have the expertise and they haven't built their own algorithms and their own data rooms and their own uh, libraries, then maybe they're not going to be as successful as you think. 
So okay. there is a bit of a change for that and a bit of an understanding that there are companies that are going to change the world with what they're doing because of the amount of libraries and data they can get access to. But there is a breaking point where you have to start making your data back up. So you're going to be back to the 80-20, except for instead of it being 80% made up, 20% real, it's going to be 80% real, 20% made up. And that'll shift over time because you're running out of data sources. Hence the reason why everybody from Reddit, um, Twitter, they're all shutting down their API calls because they don't want all these systems to be plunging all the data out of them, which means that it's preventing these systems from getting smarter. So what will be the trajectory in the future? You're going to have more robotics. There's going to be a lot more automation that's going to occur. Will AI enable that? 100%. Will that enable more jobs? It's going to shift the way jobs work. Just like the internet shifted the way we communicate, AI will shift the way robotics works, which will shift the way we operate. So there'll be different jobs that manage different outcomes. So you've got robotics. You know, Web 3.0 has taken a huge hit. NFTs have taken a huge hit. Are they going to bounce back? Maybe on the next bull run, you'll see some dollars go back into that space. But I'm not 100% certain it's going to be this frothy, crazy model that it was. I think you're going to see a lot in blockchain. I think blockchain is really the universal change that's going to open things up from a financial perspective because people are tired of fraud. So you're going to see a lot more of that come out. Uh, And maybe you'll see... um, a shift in Bitcoin, blockchain coin, like different coins because of the value that they could have, even though they're a tough one because they don't transact and nobody's trading to buy a pizza anymore for a Bitcoin. So things have changed a lot in that dynamic. It's more of a hold asset. So I think there are going to be markets that are going to see hyper growth and bigger growth over time. And I think we're looking at that as a world where we're shifting the way people operate and work. And you're going to see more automation, robotics, uh, blockchain. I think they're kind of the more prominent and they will have a backing of AI. So it's not going to be AI, AI. It's going to be AI on the background and business models that are going to circumvent how industries are working. I think you said it very well. And we're almost at the end. There are a few more questions left. What is your advice to all startup founders out there? Like you have looked, you know, you have worked with startups and you have worked with investors. You know both the sides, like what people are expecting, what people are producing. So what's your piece of advice to the startup founders out there? You know, when we did a, we did an, an exit with one of our founders that um, unfortunately, as I mentioned, failed. And he came up with and he shared a bunch of uh, details on what he would do differently on his next company. And I will change some of these and alter them a bit to for, for the audience. But I, I think the key is that uh, the biggest one was be the painkiller, not the vitamin. Solve a real problem. Validate the problem to make sure it is a real problem that people want to pay for. And then when they're hooked in, they won't stop using your product because there's so much value within your product that they will keep using it. So that is being the painkiller. The other side of it is just go after it. Understand the market, be the best, dive into it. You're going to have, it's a roller coaster ride. You're going to have a million upsets for every two gains. So build, gain, fail, change, operate, do whatever it takes to keep moving forward. Keep your business clean. 
all fronts, financially, governing, everywhere, because people want to get into companies that have great cultures, that have built solid revenue-generating businesses, and find the right people that support you, from your advisors, your coaches, to the team, your family, everybody that comes in. Just build great companies. And if you don't go for venture, you don't raise capital, that's okay. You can build a great company that just generates you revenue and money, and that is okay. You do not have to go after venture. Venture goes after scalable, fast-growing companies. You can still build a great company and not go for ventures. So you do not have to chase money and waste time. Build a great company, they will chase you. The whole market should shift to them chasing you. Because really, if you build a great company, who doesn't want to chase you to give you money? So that's my thoughts. I mean, like, you actually, this particular part is like very well said, the painkiller, the vitamin, and everything was so collaborated. Uh, I'm in my final question. Like, this is a question that I ask each and every single guest in my podcast. So what's your view on passion and failure? Passion is what wakes you up in the morning. It's what keeps you up at night. Failure is what drives you nuts. The guilt of not delivering on the message that you said you would when you started the business or started in a direction. You will overcome that guilt because you'll take the learnings to build the next company and you'll do it better than the last company. So have passion. Solve a real problem again. Be the painkiller. Do something you believe in that will wake you up at four in the morning when you just went to bed at two. That's what passion delivers. Passion gets you so excited that you cannot wake, wait to get up to work on that again. That's what's going to drive you for seven, ten years of building an exciting, awesome company. Failure is part of life. It's part of everything you do. It's accepting it that you can't win at every battle that you go after. It's knowing that you can't win at every battle, but it's also knowing that you can change and pivot and grow throughout that time. Ask the right questions. Walk away when you need to. But passion is what keeps you in the game. Got it. So we're done. I I, I mean, this 45 minutes to one hour just flew. And I've gained a lot of knowledge and information from this particular space. All the doubts that I had, I cleared with you. From, you know, making a career shift, you know, having different thoughts and ideas in fintech, deep tech, or even on AI. Like, I've, I've clarified all the all the questions that has been bustling in my head for quite a few days. So, thank you so much for the entire information that you have provided in the podcast. This is really going to be helpful for so many people out there. As you, were, you said, like, from first, you have to give back to the community. And you are giving, and you are now as well giving it back to the community. People are going to gain a lot of knowledge from that. I want to thank you so much for accepting to be there in my podcast. And it's been a wonderful pleasure having you here. Likewise. DJ, thank you very much for all of your great questions. Well thought out, and I love your analysis. Fantastic job on the spot, and everything you're asking and what you're doing is fantastic. So stay brilliant and keep keep driving people to answer those questions because that information is great to get. So thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um... Thank you, Jeffrey, once again for being on the show. I hope this episode brings a lot of value to people out there. Stay tuned for the next episode. Until then, you're listening to Entremine and I'm your host, PJ.